Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to The Rest is History, the 12 days of Christmas, or in our case, the 13 days of Christmas, because we couldn't decide uh, when to begin and end it. Uh, we have now, of course, reached the 29th of December, which is when you're probably listening to this. And Tom Holland, I think you may have chosen a subject very close to my heart, an event that happened on this day, on the 29th of December, many centuries ago, with which I have a very profound personal connection. Am I right? You are right, Dominic. Um, it is the murder of Thomas Beckett, uh, which has been a, a great theme of poetry and drama over the years. Um, yeah. T.S. Eliot's great play, of course, Murder in the Cathedral. Um, but there was another play, wasn't there? It was an absolutely first-class play, I think you'll find. In, in which you played the <laughs> yeah. Archbishop. So uh, Perhaps you'd like to the, tell the, the listeners about this for the umpteenth time. How many times have <laughs> you told this story? I think this is about the second time, Tom, only. I think it's at least the fourth. Uh, so the French playwright Jean Anouy, uh, wrote a play called Beckett, or Beckett, as he would no doubt have called it. Um, and, what would he have uh, called it? Beckett. Um, and uh, he was writing, I can't remember, the 50s or the 60s, and he very much is writing in the sort of aftermath of the Second World War, French Resistance, and he casts Thomas Beckett. He has a lot of stuff about the Normans and the Saxons, so the Normans are kind of sort of Nazi occupiers or, or and the Saxons are the, are the French are, the, are sort of resistance exactly mm -hmm. and uh, Becker ends up working collaborating with the king and then he refines his sort of Saxonness and, and when he finds God and he ends up being martyred so I was in a production of this um, that went to the Edinburgh Festival so I think we did two weeks of rehearsals was it only two, it might have been a month of rehearsals in London beforehand they went very badly, I think it's fair to say. And with about a week to go before we mm. went to Edinburgh, the director, 
who later ended up directing Paddington. Yeah. Uh, he said, this isn't working at all. This is an absolute shambles. We desperately need to rescue this. And what we'll do is, we'll, I mean, he did what basically all student plays do when they're desperate. They said, he said, let's set it very explicitly in the Third Reich. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yes. And have people dressed as Nazis and all this yeah. sort of thing. And I can remember bitterly opposing this, but I was completely outvoted by the rest of the cast, which made me feel very miserable. Uh, so we arrived in Edinburgh and we did it toward, to, I think it's fair to say, quite small audiences. Was maybe. it was it received with critical plaudits? Well, the Scotsman reviewed it and gave it two stars out of five. <laughs> and, as, and as regular listeners will know, they said... Uh, Teenage bishops and trainers do not exactly convey the majesty of the medieval church. Uh, and, you know, I could have played Paddington off the back of that. Um, but it wasn't to be different. Yeah, but... Uh, and you Well, uh, so I think that this is an entirely worthy um, subject, uh, the murder of Thomas Beckett. Um, yeah, the murder both of... Both for the role that it's played in your life. Yeah. Well, but also he, as a key event in um, I think in some, some critics would say he was, he's been murdered twice. Uh, <laughs> once by Henry II's knights and once by some, some, dra- some, some students from England. No, but, but clearly yeah. not, because um, the director of Paddington, a wonderful film, yeah. obviously thought that your performance was charismatic and powerful enough that you could play Macbeth. Yeah, and, and Paddington. Well, I, I'm the and Paddington. I'm assuming slightly. I'm assuming that. I'm assuming that. Yeah. I mean, I just I, it seems to be obvious that he would have wanted me to play Paddington Ultimate Beth. Okay. okay. Uh, but that well, offer has never explicitly been made. Dominic, have you talked enough about your? Um... Probably not. Actually, <laughs> is there anything else you'd like? Do to, you want to talk about? You'd like to share? Shall we talk about Thomas? Beckett? Talk about Thomas Beckett. So who is okay. who is Thomas Beckett for those people who are still? Okay, so Thomas Beckett. Know. We we talked about him in the World Cup of Kings because, uh, of course, his great opponent. Erstwhile friend, opponent, um, Henry II. And Thomas Beckett is a Londoner. So he grew up not far from Cornhill, where we were for our Christmas Carol episode. Um, so he grew up on Ch- on Cheapside. I see him like Ray Winston or, or Danny Dyer. <laughs> I, think, I don't think he was like Danny Dyer, but I, yeah, that's kind of a nice idea. Um, and he was a kind of um, hung out with Henry II. Henry II felt he was very much his creature because he was you know, relatively speaking, of humble stock, um, makes him chancellor. Uh, and then Henry is having a massive run-in with the, with the Pope, with the uh, the church, um, and thinks it would be a tremendous wheeze to appoint Thomas to um, become Archbishop of Canterbury on the assumption that Thomas will continue to, you know, be a lad and do yeah. what Henry wants. So they're carousing and stuff together, aren't they? Oh, that, that kind of stuff. Do? Yeah. 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 They're kind of massive lads together. The moment he becomes Archbishop, Thomas becomes this deeply saintly figure and he takes Henry on uh, and relations between them uh, get worse and worse. And Thomas ends up going into exile. Um, And there's, you know, it's, it's a terrible business. And by 1170 negotiations between Henry II, the Pope, Thomas, the King of France, all the kind of various people who are embroiled in this, what's become a massive international scandal, They've patched together, I guess, what is the uh, the kind of medieval equivalent of a Brexit deal in that it's just about looks as though, you know, it's kind of OK, but there are all kinds of problems with it and, and hostages to fortune. So um, this is in 1170 and 1st of December, Thomas lands back in England at Sandwich and he travels along the road to Canterbury and he's greeted ecstatically by the people of Kent, 
who all kind of hail him as you know the friend of widows and the the patron of orphans and all this kind of stuff and one chronicler compares him to christ entering jerusalem on palm sunday so uh this doesn't obviously improve um the mood yeah henry must be delighted by this doesn't improve the it doesn't improve the, the well henry's not delighted but also that there are other people um so there's a guy uh called ranulph de brock who's a local landowner who's been given a castle called saltwood which traditionally belongs to the Archbishops of Canterbury. Doesn't that end up being owned by Alan Clark? It does. Yes, it does. Uh, and uh, Jane Clark, his wife, still lives there to this day. Hmm. Um, it's where David Davis uh, <laughs> went all around the battlements while drunk. Really? So yeah, it has it has a very it has a very checkered history. But Roger Ralph de Brock is obviously not pleased at, at having Beckett back. Um, and he's busy stirring up trouble with Henry, who's just over the channel in Normandy. Um, and there are various other people who are also furious with Thomas, chief of whom are three bishops. So the Archbishop of York, the Bishop of London, and the Bishop of Salisbury. Oh, who, Salisbury. Yeah, I'm afraid the Bishop of Salisbury doesn't come out of this well. Oh, dear. Um, he, he, so they have been in York, and they have crowned Henry's son, who's also called Henry, as king. Henry so the Young kind of, King. Henry the Young King. I think he's about 15 or something. So he's kind of teenager. And Thomas is livid about this because only the Archbishop of Canterbury can crown kings of England. That's the rule. Yeah. Archbishop of York can't muzzle in. So he's furious about this. He he demands an apology. They refuse to apologise. So Thomas excommunicates them. And he's done this even before he lands in England. The the three bishops come down. They have a big bust up with Thomas. Uh, They then go storming off. They take ship. They cross to, to Normandy. They they come to Henry and they say that um, the bust up hasn't just, it, it's not been about the uh, the argument about who should do the crowning, the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Archbishop of York. It's been because um, Thomas is questioning whether Henry has the right to be crowned as king. So Henry feels that the entire legitimacy of his dynasty is being questioned. Yeah. And even though this is a, a bad making are they Are they making this up? They're basically making it up. What, snakes? The Bishop of Salisbury, what a snake. Yeah, and and you know what the the uncle of the Bishop of Salisbury says when he hears this? Um, The only way to deal with such a man is to hang him on a gibbet. He's not wrong. Yeah, if it had been true, but it wasn't true. Oh, he's talking about Beckett. I thought he was talking talking about about the Bishop of Salisbury. No, he's talking about Beckett. Oh, that's poor. So uh, there's this kind of rhubarb rhubarb, which you'd know as an actor. uh, Of course. From from all the kind of the the, uh, the aristocrats and people um, at, at Henry's court. And we have various reports as to what Henry then said. Does he say... Who will rid me of this turbulent priest? Well, he either says, What miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and promoted in my realm, who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a lowborn clerk? Ooh, that's strong. That's good. I like that. A man who has eaten my bread, who came to my court poor, and I have raised him high. Now he draws up his heel to kick me in the teeth. He has shamed my kin, shamed my realm. The grief goes to my heart and no one has avenged me. That's also strong and good. Good lines. How many cowardly, useless drones have I nourished that not even a single one is willing to avenge me of the wrongs I have suffered? So those are the three reports from contemporaries. So he never says, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? Nope. Uh, 18th century. Well, that's a revelation to me. That So in this entire podcast series, going back to the when we started, 2020, this is the most exciting thing I've learned. Yeah, that's overturned my previous convictions. That's what this podcast is all about, isn't it? Yeah, but it's pushed back against the herd mentality that's taken root in my mind. 
But um, two of those statements kind of point out why Henry is particularly furious, and that is that he's a massive snob. Yeah, because what he's harping on the low born exactly. Yeah. So he's harping on the fact that the, the, it's not just that Thomas is opposing him; it's the fact that he's low born that he dares to stand up to, to me, the king. Henry the Second is Virginia Woolf. That is what is driving him. Yes, <laughs> well, it's all in Kent as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so that that basically is 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 what's um, pissing Henry off, and it's it's he, he's having one of his rages, and he's 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 prone to rages. You know, he'll kind of pull his clothes off and eat straw and spit and scream and gibber and punch the wall. That's very unbecoming behaviour from a Plantagenet warlord. Well, John does it as well, doesn't he? I mean, all the Plantagenets are giving to kind of chewing straw and (laughs) (laughs) hitting walls with fists. So anyway, that's basically what Henry's doing. And most people, when, when he gets in a mood like this, they know better than to take him seriously. Yeah. But there are, there are four knights who are, of obscure background who don't know Henry well, who are not versed in, in his character, who are keen to make a mark for themselves. So Reginald Fitzurse, William de Tracy, Richard Brito and Hugh de Morville. Anyway, so these four knights um, get on their horses, go galloping um, to the channel, get on ship, cross over, yeah. where they rendezvous in Saltwood Castle, hang out with, with Ranulph de Brock. Right. Uh, and they then head on to Canterbury and they arrive there um, in the afternoon. And Ralph de Brock brings all his men at arms with him and they seal off the city, essentially, so that Thomas won't be able to escape. The knights go bursting into um, uh, the Archbishop's Hall, where Thomas is kind of hanging out. Uh, they confront him. Um, Thomas very much holds his own, mm. sends them packing. Um they're <laughs> they're not kind of they're not thrilled by that. Um they go out. Uh they then try to to break back in. But by this point it's all been locked up. So they traipse through an orchard. Uh they climb up a ladder. They break in that way. But by this point Thomas has gone to Vespers. Yeah. And he walks into into the cathedral and his uh, the various monks bar the doors behind them because they're worried about what's going to happen. And Thomas says, "No, open." You know, the, this is the Church of God. It must be open to all comers. So he orders the bolts to be slid open, doors to be opened, so that he knows what he's doing. He's courting martyrdom. And the knights come in. Beckett could easily have fled. I mean, he could easily have hidden. It's very dark by this point. You know, the shadows are lengthening. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't. He stands his ground and he gets kind of brutally murdered. And we've already talked about this, about how there there is one blow that is um, so brutal that it slices through the crown of his skull. So like the top of an egg being sliced off with a knife. Um, and the sword comes down with such force that it sends sparks flying in the air. And so his his brains start to seep out across the floor. And one of the other knights then takes his sword and scrapes all the brains out of the skull. This is a very, this is meant to be a festive podcast, Tom. Yeah, it kind of is. I mean, it's 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 one of the great feast days, the Master yeah. of Beckett, that then gets forgotten with the Reformation. Obviously, have you seen the um, the version of this in the Black Adder? No, the uh, the medieval first series of what I must have Black done. Adder. So in that, um, Edmund Rowan Atkinson is made Archbishop of Canterbury, and um, knights attack him. But he and Baldric and Percy, his mates, disguise themselves as nuns. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and well, that doesn't happen with Thomas, who very bravely escape. accepts his martyrdom. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the guy who is um, 
Hugh de Morville, I think it is, is scraping the brains out with his sword. Um, and he shouts, he keeps yelling out, he won't be getting up again. He oh, won't God. be getting up again. No. As he, he kind of spatters the brains oh all over the gosh. floor. So, um, so that's the, the martyrdom of Thomas. Um, they go galloping off into the night. Uh, Henry, of course, has brought the news and he goes, oh, sh- oh wasn't sure about it. I mean, I, he pretends to be terribly upset. I don't think he is particularly He's probably slightly relieved that Thomas has gone, isn't he? I think he is relieved. I think he is relieved. But he also knows that this has opened a terrible kind of... Well, he yes, because immediately Thomas's relics start to perform miracles. Yeah. Um, and it spontaneously becomes this great place of pilgrimage. And in the end, Henry submits to, um, you know, the public humiliation of walking barefoot through Canterbury and being birched by uh, monks and things, simply so that he can kind of buy into the charisma of the martyred archbishop. Yeah. Um, and so it remains, you know, the great centre of pilgrimage for centuries and centuries. It's it's where the Canterbury pilgrims go in Chaucer's poem. Um, and for obvious reasons, Henry VIII hates it. Yeah. Absolutely hates it. Um, and so it becomes the particular object of the, the fury of, uh, of his reformers. So I was going to ask a question about Thomas Beckett. Do you think that you can draw a little line between, a faint line between Thomas Beckett and people like Thomas Cromwell? Um, centuries later, low-born, risen-up, king's sort of pal and minister. Both uh, Londoners. Yeah, becoming involved with the church, all that stuff. Except that Thomas Cromwell is the great servant of the king. Exactly. So Tom, so, so, Tom, so, in some ways, was Henry II, do you think, expecting that Thomas Beckett would was, behave? Would be a Cromwell, yes. Would be a Cromwell, yeah, exactly. Or a Wolsey, I think, more likely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I think so. Okay. Uh, and, and, and Beckett's refusal to, to do that was... Well, that's certainly what I tried to, to work into my performance. And it's a shame that uh, the Scotsman never recognised that. But you weren't in Murder in the Cathedral. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Which is a great play, I think. I've never seen that or read it. Very powerful. Um, great, great lines on, on how tempting it is to be a martyr. Right. Now is my way clear. Now is the meaning plain. Temptation shall not come in this kind again. The last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. I can imagine you saying that. Yeah, I can. In your trainers. We've had we've had poetry before, William McGonagall, and now we've had T.S. Eliot. Yeah. We've hit, you know, both the... The poetry vein. We have. Right, let's take a break, and then we'll come back with some um, Native Americans. See you after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows 
to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History with our celebration of the 29th of December. And it's a rather morbid um, celebration because we've already had the murder of Thomas Beckett, um, rather brutal um, assassination in the heart of Canterbury Cathedral. And now, Dominic, you've got more. I've got a shocking story, a really brutal story. So it's the massacre at Wounded Knee on the 29th of December, 1890. So we did a podcast earlier in the on year. the Wild West, the, the Wild West that was yeah. enormously enjoyable. I loved doing that. It's such an interesting subject. And we haven't really done much American sort of Western history. And we haven't done any kind of Native American history at all, really, have we? So this is the most famous incident, probably apart from the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Um, probably the single most famous incident in the, the sorry history of the interaction between you know, European Americans... And it's, it's given its its name to the title of D. Brown's famous revisionist work on exactly Native Bury Americans in the West. Very much wounded me. And um, I also thought thought this was a good story, Tom, because it's kind of a gift to you because it's it's partly about the influence of Christianity, isn't it? I know. Yes, it is. So yeah. let's set the scene a bit. So we are in the kind of Great Plains of the United States. Uh, specifically, we are in what you know, South Dakota. What we know as South Dakota. Um, the U.S. Army has been campaigning basically for years, for decades, to subdue the Plains Indians. The arrival of the railroads has done tremendous damage to the kind of ecosystem on which the, the Indians rely. Um, so they relied, of course, on the bison and so on. That's largely gone. Um, they're, Quite they're deliberately, right? I mean, yeah. that's, cause we talked about that in the Wild West episode. Exactly. The, the deliberate they're, extermination of the bison. Their world has fallen apart, and, and and their world has fallen apart deliberately because white settlers have have taken it upon themselves deliberately to destroy that world. Often, Union generals, generals who've been involved in the Civil War, uh, play a big part in that. Washington politicians as well. Um, so by this point, so let's pick up in the sort of late eighteen eighties, the Lakota Sioux. So the Sioux, probably the most one of the most famous, yeah, of the victors of Bighorn. Indian groups, they are on reservations by and large. And they're finding that really tough. So that basically the US government is encouraging them to become agriculturalists, to raise to plant crops, to become basically farmers. And not to and go that, hunting buffalo. And that's completely you know, they that's not really part of their culture. They're that's they're completely unsuited to it. They are being encouraged by federal agents, agents of the Bureau of Indian Affairs to wear Western clothes, you know, to, to dress in sort of suits and trousers and stuff, to speak English, um, crucially to abandon their traditional religion and to embrace Christianity. Um, so their sort of mental and imaginative world is collapsing and they're being forced to adopt all these sort of new and, and strange things. But at the same time, there's a series of harsh winters and droughts and things. They don't have much food. They're reliant on government rations, which are being sort of stripped back because the government is cutting them. So they're in a terrible state, basically. And then at the beginning of 1890, this 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 cultish movement sweeps through the reservations of the plains. The ghost dance. The ghost dance. Now, it's an absolutely fascinating thing. It's the it, it has been around for a while, but it is revived by a kind of Indian prophet almost, who's a man called Wavoka. Now his father had been a ghost dancer, 
and had taught his son about it. His son has been raised among people who have, by ranchers, who have exposed him and his friends to Christianity. So a kind of messianic religion is, is, is in his mind. It's in the ether. At the Jesus will come again. And... Exactly. And now the story goes that it's in, there's, a, there's an eclipse on New Year's Day, 1889, I think it is. And he falls asleep or has, uh, goes into a kind of trance. And God tells him that the, if the Indians do this ritual dance, this circular dance and follow these instructions, then in two years time, God will return the earth to the state that it was in before the Americans, the white settlers arrived. And the buffalo will come back. That's what I always find so tragic. The buffalo will return and the white settlers themselves will be buried under 30 feet of soil and that the Indians' ancestors will rise from the dead. And that's that's why it's a ghost dance, right? Right, exactly. Now you can see why where Christianity may have seeped into this. You know, the idea of being risen from the dead, the idea of the second coming, all of this sort of stuff. And among the Lakota Sioux, this becomes an incredibly powerful message. People want to hear it. Of course they do, because their lives are, are, are so terrible. So they start wearing these white shirts called ghost shirts, where they put on, they painted them with kind of, or decorated them with sacred symbols. And they are told or tell themselves that these symbols will protect them against American army bullets. So the movement spreads and spreads and spreads throughout 1889, 1890. And the federal agents are very put out by this. They're, they're, they don't understand it. They're worried about it. They think it has potential to become a kind of insurgency. And basically by November 1890, the US Army is being sent into the plains and told, stop the ghost dance, you know, round them up and get them to stop it. So the first instance of this... um, they uh, try to round up a load of Sioux who are who are living near the Standing Rock Agency with Sitting Bull, the great yes. chief, yeah. um, who had famously been involved, been one of the people who had led the the Indians at the Battle of the Little Bighorn uh, in 1876 when Custer and the Seventh Cavalry had been defeated. Well, uh, so I think it's December the fifteenth. Um, sit there, rounded up. Uh, there's a sort of a bit of a struggle. Some of the the Sioux are killed, and one of them is Sitting Bull. So and there's a terrible story about that that Sitting Bull had been with Buffalo Bill on the uh, you know the Wild West show. Yes, and so the horse had been trained to dance to the sound of of, of rifle fire, and so when Sitting Bull gets shot, he falls and you know he's bleeding into the dust, and his horse starts to dance. As he oh, does. that's a terrible story. Tom. It's a terrible story. <laughs> this is such a depressing yeah. episode of our podcast. I know it's just kind of blood everywhere. So, so there's that, and that that when that news of this reaches the other Sioux and the other reservations, they are absolutely horrified by this. Some of them start kind of gathering. They're prepared for what they see as a showdown with the U.S. Army. And do you think it's apocalyptic? Is it in an apocalyptic mood? Because I think they so. Must, absolutely, they must yes. know that they can't. You know, by conventional yeah. standards, they haven't got a hope. But. Absolutely. I, th- I think they absolutely... So some of them perhaps uh, are caught up with kind of religious hysteria almost. Yeah. And think they can win. But I suspect most of them, as you say, there is an apocalyptic... Um, not quite suicidal, but there is definitely an apocalyptic sense, which is, of course, built into the into the, the cult. So some there's a guy called Red Cloud who is um, trying to do a deal with the... Um, with the with the Americans and uh, he's on a pine the Pine Ridge reservation, uh, 
And some of the Indians are trying to get to the Pine Ridge Reservation where they can unite with Red Cloud and so on. And among one of the groups who are trying to get to Pine Ridge are a group of mini Konju, um, Lakota Sioux. And they are led uh, by a guy called Bigfoot. Um, so his real name is Sitanka, but the Americans know him as Bigfoot. And Bigfoot gets about 350 of these guys. And he says, I say guys, men, women and children, says, let's get to Pine Ridge, unite with Red Cloud. And, you know, hopefully it'll be OK. Off they go. The Americans hear that they're moving and get in a flap about it. And they send the 7th Cavalry. Hmm. So basically the very, you, yeah. you know, the sort of um, part of the army that has been beaten at Little Bighorn to intercept them. And on the 29th of December, um, they basically, they, the American 7th Cavalry round up these these people and they'd say, we're going to confiscate all your weapons. So they get, they basically herd them into a clearing. They surround the clearing with cavalry. They, 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 they position guns facing, because the Americans, of course, are, are frightened themselves. They don't understand the ghost dance. They don't understand the Indians. Um, so it's, 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 it, it's all sort of set up. The 7th Cavalry starts searching them for weapons. And at this point, a man called Sits Straight starts to dance the ghost dance. Now, you can sort of, it's an act of, why is he doing it? Act of defiance. Um, because he himself is frightened. Because, an act of defiance, but also perhaps um, an attempt to invoke the second coming. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And he says to the others, he's saying to the others, don't worry, you know, our white shirts mean that we can't be hurt yeah. by the Americans' bullets. Um, so he get this dance becomes more and more kind of frenzied, um, sort of whirling dance, and the American soldiers become more and more anxious. You know, you can almost trigger happy sense their fingers yeah. tensing on the triggers, and basically it's at this point that one of the Indians, who's a guy called Black Coyote, is told to give up his gun. He is deaf, so he doesn't understand or hear, and his Something then happens. It's not clear. His, a gun goes off. Maybe it's his gun. Um, the 7th Cavalry, who are so trigger-happy and nervous, they you can imagine the scene. Yeah. They start shooting. Suddenly, all hell is breaking loose. Everybody is shooting. Probably within moments, most of the casualties um, happen at first, and they are enormous casualties. So the Americans so just women and children start blasting well, away. Accounts of what happened are... They conflict and they are, there are sort of debates about what happened. But we do know that about 146 of the Indians were later buried in a mass grave, but probably about 300 of them were killed in total. And about half of them are women and children. So it's a genuine massacre. When, it's that classic thing that you get with, if you ever, ever you read about massacres in history, that it starts by accident and then it becomes a kind of addictive frenzy and everybody starts shooting. And once they've started, they can't stop until everybody's dead. Um, so the officers lose control. Everybody's kind of, you know, pouring bullets into these defenseless people. Um, at least about 25 of the American soldiers themselves were killed, probably by their own side. Because, yeah. I mean, they're in a circle. So they're yeah. almost firing on each other. So it's this horrendous scene. Um, and what happens at first is the Bureau of Indian Affairs says it's basically a battle. We were attacked by Indians and we were defending ourselves, but very soon it comes out that it was a massacre and it becomes this terrible sort of stain um, on... Well, because also, I mean, it, it, it draws a line under direct combat, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's the, it's the last... 
it's it's the it's always the final chapter of every book isn't but also it? i mean it's it if you were writing a script of the tragedy of the native americans in the united states you couldn't have written a more moving or no upsetting exactly right. climax to it really Exactly right. It's the perfect. It's in a way. It's kind of microcosm, or it's kind of metaphor for yeah, the, the kind of blood what, seeping out into the snow. I mean, for the wider story, miserable. Exactly, very miserable. The guy who was the commanding officer, Geico Forsyth. There's an investigation into him. He is temporarily stripped of his command, but you know, the investigation finds that he was innocent and he's restored to his post. So, you know, that that in yeah. a way is not surprising. That's exactly always going to happen because, in a way, I'm, I don't want to be too strident about this. But what's undoubtedly true is that in the 19th century, I think white sort of um, European Americans didn't really admit to themselves the extent of what was happening to the Indians. And it's still not, it's, it, we talked about this in the Wild West podcast. You know, the, the great American sin is, is perceived as being slavery, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. um, the arguments about Af- the African Americans sort of place in the United States, their history in the United States, they're incredibly resonant and, contested and all of this and and what happened to the native americans it, it's a it feels like a smaller well, story doesn't it it doesn't yeah, get discussed but... as much it doesn't get there's there aren't such high profile campaigns it's not but it should be but well because there aren't as many i mean and, and we know right. why there aren't as many because they've all yeah. wiped out yeah um but i'm kind of thinking there are certain you know certain kind of parallels between the two stories the two um periods that we've looked at um and one is that there's a there's a kind of sense of delayed acknowledgement of guilt on on the part of henry the second and yeah. he kind of says yeah okay it's, it's it's a terrible thing whatever and then it's only gradually that he comes to realize how potent an episode it's been and how he wants to get on the right side of it yeah and you could say that a kind of slightly similar process has happened with wounded knee that it's taken time for, you know, white people, I guess. Um, yeah. The United States, the apparatus of the United States government, whatever you, however you want to put it, to kind of fully acknowledge the scale of what, of what happened. Uh, and, and to recognize that there is a, a kind of power in that martyrdom. Because, yeah. you know, there's a reason why it's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, why that's such an evocative name and why that book had such an impact um, to the degree that I think it'd be very difficult ever again to, portray uh you know cowboys and indians where the the indians are the baddies i just don't think you could ever do that again um it's also post dances with wolves though isn't it tom don't you think dances with wolves? but i think dances with wolves was so influenced by um bury my heart at wounded knee yeah um i think there's you know there's kind of with both of them i think there was a kind of sense of delayed shock uh and with both of them there's a sense that there is a kind of dare i say sacral power <laughs> to be had yeah in well, martyrdom in 1973, and, you know, when um, Indians wanted to, Indian activists wanted to protest against their treatment, they occupy the site of Wounded Knee. It's Wounded Knee that they choose. Yeah. Um, the protest against the, I mean, it's during the Nixon years, it's not specifically against Nixon, it's against the sort of the American government more generally. Um, and their neglect. I mean, that's the site they choose for absolutely understandable reasons. Yeah. Um, I suppose that I, w- I would buy that a bit more about its power if it had led to, if recognition of, since D. Brown's book had led to any kind of real change in the in the plight of American Indians, they're still the sort of forgotten victims, aren't they? Don't you think? I uh, maybe maybe, 
but I think I think they have I think that their sufferings have a much higher prominence now than they did. No, they did in the fifties, let's say. And I think century. I think that yeah. um, if you if you think about maybe the resentment that that's generated, as well as the kind of sympathy, perhaps then you get also. I mean, maybe I'm stretching things here, but you get a sense of what was at stake when Henry VIII destroyed Becket's tomb. The the power of a martyr can be very dangerous. Yeah, to those okay. who feel menaced by it. This is absolutely heroic work, Tom. To to link these two, <laughs> well, no no podcast in history has ever d- tried to draw a par- a link between the death of Thomas. But don't you Beckett think? Do you, do you not think that there's a kind of parallel there? I think there's a kind of, I mean, uh, very distant echo, but the memory um, of martyrdom. I the suppose the power so. of martyrdom. Yeah. I mean, both both rank as martyrs. Yes, I, I suppose so. Um, I mean, there's slight slight echo in the uh, the wounded knee massacre as well of um, the massacre of the innocents, which we talked about <laughs> earlier. I mean, there's that you know the spectacle of of large numbers of innocent people being slaughtered. Yeah. Well, American history has these massacres. So Milay, Milay or whatever, I can't remember how to pronounce it. Uh, the massacre of Vietnamese um, during the Vietnam War is the other great famous massacre in uh, American history. Um, and again, I mean, that's, there, there are some people, I mean, I don't, I doubt many listeners of this podcast, to this podcast, but there will be some people who would kind of roll their eyes at mention of this and say, oh, God's sake, you know, Shut up! Let's don't be so woke. What woke, woke tosh? To quote, um, to quote people about the uh, the victory of Athelstan in the in the rest <laughs> of history World Cup. I mean, I don't think it is woke tosh, but uh, there you go. And, and and since I'm the arbiter, yeah, you can decide. Yeah, you I, can decide. I, I have decided. Okay. It's not right. We're just well, wittering. Tom, note, we're just yeah, rambling we're now. We are. We are. We are. We are. Um, but I I think also it it um, there's a, a particular quality to um to tragedy in the depth of winter. A sacral quality, Tom? Uh, uh, maybe. Um, it's 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 a conjunction of red and white. It's the blood and the it. snow. There is something. It's the blood and snow. Yeah. Well, I think isn't that also because the Indian story is usually perceived in, in popular culture as the the cowboys and Indian story is is perceived as having played out in the heat of the desert or the yeah. heat of the plains, and the fact that the end, the final chapter, is in the snow, yeah, makes it feel all the more kind of tragic. The and ice, kind of, yeah. 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 Anyway, on that cheery note, we will uh, bid you farewell. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with December the 30th. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. 